Jason, can you believe it? 100. What, what? <laughs> 100. That's 100. Absolutely amazing that this moment. Crazy. We've done 100 of these. Yeah, man. And it's like, it was like yesterday that this moment started and we're already on triple digits. And of course, you know we had to do something really, really special. We brought all of Harlem in to Ginny's. Jason has huge ties to Harlem. Also, of course, I have Red Rooster here. I live here with my family. And we felt it was just right. We brought the queen of hospitality, Melba Wilson. She's super successful and really a role model when it comes to being a local operator, when it comes to being black in the space. As I always say, I am born, bred, and buttered right here in the village of Harlem. So Harlem molded me and it shaped me. It prepared me for life. And she's a true hero here in Harlem. We brought Miss Bevy Smith. She talks to us about what it means to be raised in Harlem, walk this street, but also gives us a lot of cues about how it is to be a black female in marketing, in fashion, the two worlds that she lived in. When I went into the world, the, the very whitewashed world of fashion, I went in um, knowing who I was and knowing that I was enough and not feeling like I needed to adjust my person to be there. And that's what Harlem gave me. But to top it off, we brought Mr. The legend. The icon. Dapper Dan is in the building. You constantly create for the artists. You constantly create for the people in the community. You know, fashion and music should be like the Harlem River. It's always there, but it's always moving. I don't know anyone else in the world that has such an impact on hip-hop and fashion, which really then translates into pop culture. We celebrated the 100 really properly. We did, because that's what you guys deserve. If we turn 100, we want to give the best conversation possible to you guys. And we want to say a big shout out to you guys, the listeners that keep this moving, to the sponsors that keep this moving, to our community at this moment. Here it is, the 100th episode. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we always called this moment a transatlantic bridge connecting Stockholm, Sweden to Harlem, USA. But it's really great to be doing this moment for the first time ever in 
where both of us are in Harlem. Absolutely. Well, first of all, a big Harlem thank you to each and one of you here in the crowd and the audience, because you mean the world to us, to both Jason and myself, that we have definitely a home court advantage. Um, and I think everyone can remember those days um, in February or March in 2020. And uh, this moment was really birthed out of fear, love, what's gonna happen to two creatives like Jason and myself, what are we gonna do? Uh, we were, there were days where we had, you know, just calling Jason, speaking to Jason was just the support of, you know, another black creative, other, other side of the phone. But I think also that there was a couple of other things that happened it was also everything around America's and the world's conversation, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and all of that really changed our topics of conversation. It was just about the pandemic first, and then 10 weeks into, five weeks into it, it really took another dramatic change. So, how, and we wanted really to share that, how unique a black perspective can be, not just in America, right? Because sometimes in America, we get totally just absorbed what's happening here, but also how that gets projected to the world. Black cultures, obviously, as we all know, it's not monolithic, so we want to express that. And through the show, we really, I learned so much. I met some of the most amazing people and had great conversations with you, but also through our guests. And I think our show also means to celebrate some of the connectivity that kept us, I would say, alive growing up as people of color in Sweden, and that's fashion, music, and food. And these three kind of global networks emanating most of it from New York and more specifically from Harlem uh, still fed kind of the culture of the African diaspora around the globe. And that's what we want to kind of tap into. And that always and inevitably leads to conversations about social issues, about family issues, about life, about hardships, about joy, through these three things. Jason and I can live this through these duo lenses, right? When we're in Sweden, everyone asks, oh, what's going on in America? And when you meet Americans, the number one question is, oh, how was it to grow up black in Sweden, right? That's the num that's the first I mostly get the, the reaction that people don't believe that I'm from Sweden. That but, too. Know, but the Bronx the is usually where people yeah. guess that I'm from. But you know? through the show we can actually explain that, right? Like I end up having to prove it by like saying things in Swedish and so forth. But that doesn't always work either. They no, think it's because, a dialect of Spanish. Because you know? sweet Jason comes from the southern tip of Sweden where they're the own my mom came from this place as well, so it's very hard for me to say anything negative about it. But Jason's dialect is, I mean, I have a little bit of J Gothenburg dialect, but Jason has truly, truly a dialect. Uh, maybe, maybe more like specifically to learn. Yeah, I'm from the south of Sweden, and we have a very, just like the south in the United States, have a very distinct and kind of deep uh, accent that I love and I'm very proud about. We're about to start to, for me, the queen of hospitality. Let me tell you something about Melba Wilson. 
First of all, I would not be in Harlem without Melba. Melba worked at Sylvia's, and she used to have this kind of clubby experience called uh, Sylvia also, where she brought these, it was on Tuesdays, where the most talented people in New York City came and performed for her. And you met everybody in town. And I just loved coming up, seeing Melba in her element. She brought everybody, from the rappers to, you know, backup singers to church singers. It was just the place to be. But she also opened her own restaurant, Melba's, around 2004 on 114 and Frederick Douglass. And it wasn't a big, it's not a big restaurant, but it's so important. It's the neighborhood restaurant here in Harlem. And she has opened several more restaurants. She's super successful. So let's jump in, guys. First up, we have Harlem's own Melba Wilson. Come on, get your roses, get your flowers. Come on. How are you, Miss Melba? You know what? It's so good to be home, right? Right? It's so good to be amongst people. I love coming out tonight and seeing all the beautiful faces. But more importantly, it's going to take me five minutes to get home. So I don't think there's nothing better than being around people you love with people that you love. So thank you. Can we talk about the piece you're rocking? This is beautiful. Thank you. This is an African designer by the name of Sai Sankov. I love her stuff. And of course, my jewelry, as always, is Black Cameo by Corinne Simpson. But if we're going to talk about style, we have to talk about these dapper damn pants here. These exactly. DD pants. Exactly. <laughs> Fresh off the presses. Have not come out yet. But I know you know a lot of people, Marcus. And Jason, did you guys see Jason's socks? Oh, okay. Oh my God, those are amazing. I thought you were going to say the shoes, but thank you. Oh, those socks are awesome. I mean, you know, I was telling, you know, Mr. Dapp earlier that shoes are very important in my family, but with fly shoes, you either know socks or you got to have good, the right socks. Those are you definitely. You don't want it to fall with the socks. Those are definitely fly Thanks. socks. Thank you, you guys have a couple of things in common, but you both have roots in the Carolinas, South Carolina. So Melba, where's your family roots, your heritage from? So my family hails from a very, very small town in South Carolina that only had three stoplights. That's how small it was. It's called Hemingway, South Carolina. And once we got a Hardee's, you could not tell us anything, okay? But it's a very small town where everyone knew everybody. And like you said, Marcus, it was the food that brought us together. You know, it, it was a barbecue where Miss Smith came and Miss Smith said, mm, I know my tater salad is good. <laughs> okay. And where you had uh, Miss, Mrs. Jason going, I hope that girl don't put no raisins <laughs> in that potato salad. But you know, food is about bragging rights. Yes. And it made you the king or the queen of our community. But it was also a vehicle that we used to tell stories. Melba, tell us, because you're such an inspiration, uh, you know, for people, entrepreneurs, people who want to get into whatever they're passionate about, tell us a little bit about your, your journey, starting at Sylvia, but then also going out on your own, setting your own legacy. How was that? Oh, wow. Well, you know, life for me ain't been no crystal stair, but I won't complain. I think that Harlem um, kind of... Uh, 
framed me for this moment. As I always say, I am born, bred, and buttered (laughs) right here in the village of Harlem. So Harlem molded me and it shaped me. Um, it, It prepared me for life. You know, when I walked down the street, if if I did something wrong, before I got to my apartment on 144th Street, you better believe, what? That the neighbor had a pop on my hand, that I had my nose turned, okay? And then I got home and my mother and dad laid it on me, you know? Um, But I think that was part of the beauty of coming from a neighborhood where you knew that people literally knew your name and that they cared, so not only is Harlem a neighborhood, it's a community. So growing up um, you know, in the food and beverage industry, I had, uh, well, even before I grew up in the industry, I had a young lady by the name of Ophelia DeVore. And Ophelia DeVore, for those of you who don't know, started her own modeling agency when she was 16. She used, she used to attend classes at Vogue Modeling School. And then one day, a brown skinned girl walked in. Ophelia DeVore was high yellow. And they said to this young lady, I'm sorry, we don't teach blacks. And it was at that moment that she realized, oh my God, they don't know that I'm black. So at 16 years old, she started the Grace Del Marco Agency where Diane Carroll, Sue Simmons, uh, Cecily Tyson, some of the greats in this industry came from. And I had the pleasure of meeting her when I was 11 years old. She took me under her wings like she was my second mom, and I soaked up everything. But it was under her tutelage that I learned about the power of positive thinking, the magic of the mind, from vision to reality. It was then that I knew that anything I wanted to do was possible. So now I walk around and I don't say impossible. I say I'm possible. Beautiful. Beautiful. And you know, your story is also why I think it's even more important is because it's current. Because sometimes in food, it's all about us claiming space, talking about it, doing it. And some, sometimes you read about incredible people of you like someone like Bigfoot Mary that set up shop on 135th Street on Lenox, but you are now, you are here. So when somebody like Rashida that has these amazing pop-ups that if you haven't gone to Rashida's pop-ups, try to get in, it's hard, but it's amazing, right? But when the, it's important because when Rashida wanted to come and work with us, the first person that called me was Melba. She said, I got someone for you, right? So there's a pipeline there, right? And when someone like Clancy that is now doing a book about black women and cooking and food and culture, right? Now she can highlight, of course, you, but she can also highlight Rashida, right? So there's a pipeline to this entrepreneurship. All of these things happened before, but now that happen in front of the public. And that's where someone like you are so important, Melba, because there is someone maybe in this room or somebody that knows someone outside this room that is thinking about Mm -hmm. stepping into hospitality and then they see that it's possible because of you, Melba. So it's a lot of responsibility. It is a lot of responsibility, but if we looked at what Harriet Tubman did, that was a lot of responsibility. 
when we look at what Frederick Douglass did, now that was responsibility. So I think that we owe it to our ancestors. We owe it to generations to come that are to come to do the work, but also to spread the love. You know, I, I, I never say me. I always say we. It's not about me. It's how I can make someone else's journey lighter and brighter and make their dreams reality. So Jason, Jason, I just have to tell you this one last thing about Melba because like I'm going, like this is 25 years ago, right? I have to, Melba knows the story. We talked about the story a million times, but it's, so we're going to this big party. Oh no. It's 1,500 people at this party. Only two black people at the whole party, right? So I'm there by myself because- You guys weren't cooking. No, 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 no. It was a, <laughs> yes. Even though a lot of yeah. them thought we were. Yeah. <laughs> the so, hell? it's 1,500 people in Manhattan, two black people. So, I couldn't afford a second ticket, so I'm there by myself. And I see, I see like this queen over there. So, I'm like, I see great blackness, I'm going to run over there. I run over there. As I get closer, I have to slow, oh, slow down a little bit. Because I'm here by myself. Do you know who Melba is there with? This is 25 years ago. Do you know who's there with? Her date was Robert De Niro. <laughs> Boom. All right. And she's like, All right. Excuse me, who are you? And she just pulled me in. <laughs> Actually, um, I wasn't there with him. He was there with me. No, I'm on the- <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Know that there are no secrets with Marcus, okay? <laughs> anyway. But Miss Melba, fast forwarding to the past two years, tell us a little bit about, I mean, how this being a tight-knit community, how food being such a, a central and, and core thing that, you know, it's our sustenance, you know? It's the baseline for everything that we then go out and do. How have these past two years of this pandemic been for you and for your business and for your neighborhood? So that's the question. Um, you know, the past two years have been something that I think none of us could have ever imagined. We could have never predicted this. I remember um, Marcus called me and Marcus said, Melba, I know you love to hug and kiss people. You love to hug, but you gotta stop that hugging thing. <laughs> he said, this pandemic is real and I don't want you to get the COVID, yes. right? And um, I got a call later on that day saying that the restaurant industry was gonna shut down. Um, but to Marcus's point, I did get COVID three days later, oh. unfortunately. But um, the pandemic was tough. I mean, the hardest part for me was having to tell my 39 employees at the time that I didn't know how long this was going to last. I didn't know when it was going to end. But more importantly, I didn't know how they were going to feed their families. You know, um, and food insecurities, it, it was not just for people other people, it was for us. It was for people in the food and beverage industry. We're used to being around food all of the time. So even though I'm a female, a black female from Harlem in a white male dominated industry, and as y'all know, it's always a pandemic for us, this was a different, this was a pandemic on top 
of a pandemic. Um, but I can tell you, the community came together unlike no other. There were times I called Bevy, Bevy girl, she's like, I'm there. If I'm in the country, I'm there. You know, same thing with Dap, call Dap, Dap, right there, taking care of people, you know, and sometimes doing things that people thought were questionable, like getting vaccinated, like getting vaccinated. You know, some people would have said, oh, well, why are you going, it's going to kill it? No, because I can tell you around 114th Street at Wadley High School, I'm driving one day, I saw a line wrapped from 114th and 8th to 7th, Adam Clayton, around 115th Street and back. And I'm like, what's going on here? Why are all these white folks at Wadley? Well, you know why they were there? To get, get vaccinated. So I didn't believe it was going to kill us, but for those of my friends, I said, now them white folks ain't going to kill themselves, so y'all go on that line and get vaccinated. You know, but even when it's, even when it didn't make sense, you have your community partners, Marcus, who... Marcus and I used to brainstorm about what we were going to do in this industry back in the early days at Aqua V. We would meet every Saturday night when he got off work and we'd go have cocktails and said, we want to do this. We're going to do that. So you always have to have a core group of people that sight unseen have your back. And I can tell you right here, Marcus, I know that's how you stood the test of time. I know that's how DAP, Bevy, and myself stood the test of time. We stood the test of time because we have communities. We have people that come out and support. And so I want to thank all of you here for doing just that. We got Sugar Hell Creamery in the house, Harlem Cycle in the house, the same thing. So thank you guys. It's an honor to meet you. And uh, I'm just happy that Brewster, Melba's still here. And yes, that, absolutely. You know, Don't jinx it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it also brings me to think of, you know, sometimes uh, you take a place like Harlem. This isn't the first crisis. Like you said, this is mm-hmm. a, a pandemic on top of a pandemic that also leads to a strength and a resilience. And sometimes when you don't use your strength for a long time, maybe you forget you have it, but then in a time of crisis when you have to, that's when you remember how strong you are. And that's what you, you both and so many of you are you know, living testaments to. So keep on going, you know. I, I would just say in the middle of the beautiful, you know, the walks, the marches around George Floyd, I would say two things. Do not speak in front of an audience after Melba. Not a good thing to do. So we were there. We were ready to march. I was up there. You know, I was so excited. And then I was like, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. And then the queen stands up like this. And she gave like, I mean, the most beautiful speech. And just to be there with you and your son it was one of the, I mean, we've done, we've we known each other so long, but that was a moment for me, particularly when Harlem, the community, really needed you, and then for you to be there with your son, it's something that I will always remember, and I love you so much, and I thank you for all the inspiration. I know you got to run later, 
but this is Harlem, so someone from the audience will probably come and take your seat. I hope so. But we appreciate you, Melba, for everything. Thank you so much. I don't know if Bebby, if Bebby, is Bebby here? Because Bebby's being quiet. Is Bebby in the room? Okay, okay. She's Bebby's here. here though, right? Yeah. All right. I don't know what to tell you about Bebby that hasn't been said, right? First of all, Bebby Smith is a force by herself. Born and raised here in Harlem. But she's also been a fashion and a marketing executive for decades. So once again, spaces that we don't see a lot of black female executives you can't come from Harlem. You can't come from a different background, so if you will. I can't say thank you enough to Bevy Smith and thank you for being a dear friend and a sister here in Harlem to us. The original Harlem fly girl, Miss Bevy Smith. So Bevy, we love you. Come up and get your flowers. We love you, Bevy. Hello. Hi. OMG, I didn't know all this was going on. There's trouble going on. You know, Marcus, Marcus, much like Melba, much like Dab, if they call me and say, they don't ever really tell me what I'm supposed to be doing with them. They're just like, can you like show up at X and Z time and just, you know, and I'm like, okay, but I never know what the heck I'm supposed to be doing. So I get here, I'm sitting with my friend Kia and I'm cocktailing. And you guys are having all these deep conversations. I'm like, Lord of mercy. I'm cocktail. You are right, though. I, I love how you match the, the, the dress you know and what? the shoes. That's to do like, you know. You know what? It's, it's so interesting. This is, goes back to Dap as well. We ain't no leopard dress and leopard heels, and they're not from the same brand at all. It's gauche. It's not a thing to do in proper fashion. <laughs> But in Harlem, we don't go by proper fashion. There you go. Okay? We gonna make it do what it do. That's how you don't... And we always do too much in Harlem. Harlem creates so new, new fashion. Exactly. You know, takes exactly. it one step further. We take it way many steps too far. <laughs> um, so, and, so let me ask you, uh, Ms. Bevy, because I know Marcus and you did a conversation, and yeah. there was something you were talking about there that I really loved, which was the importance of being, what was it, fly around the clock? <laughs> or like fly at all times? Oh, well, you know, I, I mean, and my friend Lewis is here from Harlem Haberdashery. Yeah. Um, and he and I go way back. We both worked in publishing and fashion and, you know, um, and so, you know, it's so interesting when you think about who we are as a culture, as a people. It's our innate legacy to be stylish. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a... Um, the same kind of thing of, as us being like outspoken and being activists. Being stylish is also a part of our cultural DNA. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I was raised by my mom, Miss Lolly, who some people in the room know. Yes, um, yes. And my mother's 94 and she don't stop and she won't quit. Yeah, yeah. She's going to show up and she's going to show out. But it, who were some of your fashion, like, uh, who are some of the icons that you looked up to coming up? Well, besides like, my mom, it was hmm. always the women in the Dunbar Tavern. I was raised on 150th nice. Street and 8th Avenue. And the women at the Dunbar Tavern who were the barmaids, which, by the way, guys, my entire life, everything I do for a living, I'm actually 
channeling the Harlem barmaid. Wow. Um, I am simply like, you know, I have a business dinner with Bevy. So when I host, I am a Harlem barmaid hosting. Um, when I host the show, the warmth that you see on TV, that's what a Harlem barmaid would do. So a lot of it, a lot of what I do is just really from those, it's cribbed from those ladies, but especially the style. Those women were done at all times. I want people to be like, she look good. Yes. I don't want nobody to be like, okay. No. I wanted it to be like, feel it, feel it, feel it. Yes. How you doing? You know what I mean? And, um, you know, because I think that's important. And I think that so many times women have to go through so many trials and tribulations because everyone has something to do, has something to say about the way we look, the way we present, mm -hmm. all of it. And so I was just trying to show, lead through example that damn the naysayers, you have to learn what are your gifts. Everybody's got their something. Uh -huh. And um, some of the things that folks think are my obvious gifts, which is like, you know, the things that you see. <laughs> 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 but you know, I actually have amazing legs as well. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have delightful cheekbones. I have a Cupid's bow lip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got a lot of good things. I, my skin is really great. My, I mean, that's the reason why I can show these girls, because my skin is so gorgeous. But, you know, but a lot of times we don't know these things about yeah. ourselves, yeah. you know? And so I wanted women to watch me and be like, oh, well, look, no, that lady is not, but it's what some people would, would try and be detractors about my physicality. But look at her. She seems to enjoy herself and the way she looks. So I wanted to, I wanted to leave by And you bring that everywhere. So when I'm in Sweden, wherever I go, if I'm in San Francisco, if I'm in Miami, people ask me about Harlem. And I always feel like, you know what? You should meet Bevy. <laughs> because no one can explain, be, show, tell Harlem in a better way than you. Because you've also seen it through many different ways, right? Yeah. And I just feel like you bring Harlem everywhere. So if you go to Milan for the shows, you bring Harlem with you, back. right? Yeah. So when you were coming up through marketing, whether it was in Vibe or whatever magazines or whatever market you were working with, downtown, very often you host here at the Red Rooster, you host people from downtown. Yeah. And you always bring, because this is really our love letter, our Jason Dry postcard love letter to Harlem, right? What is it that is special about this village and how do you bring it with you everywhere? Um, the reason why I've always been able to do the things that I've been able to do with such confidence is because I was raised in a place where I was appreciated, not just tolerated. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I know that there are so many parents, and this is not to downgrade parents that are like, I don't want my kid to grow up in the hood, da, 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 and they move them into all-white enclaves. I'm not a parent, but I, I hear from parents that they do that because they feel like it's a safer thing. What I have seen, though, is that oftentimes that also endangers your child. You know what I mean? There's always going to be trials and tribulations. So there's, I don't think there's any one way to do it. But what I will say is from my experience, when I went into the world, the, the very whitewashed world of fashion and of luxury fashion, because I never worked in mass fashion, mm -hmm. only luxury. And that's a very white space. Mm -hmm. And when I went into that space, um, I went in. Um, knowing who I was mm -hmm. and knowing that I was enough and not feeling like I needed to adjust my person to be there. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what Harlem gave me. I mean, you know, I, I, one of my most magical things happened during the pandemic. You know, finally, of course, the pandemic happens, George Floyd happens, and now everybody wants to talk about Juneteenth. <laughs> okay. So Juneteenth happens, and I live on 135th Street, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to Market Scarby Park. There's going to be a huge Juneteenth event. But I walk out my building, and literally across the street from where I live, there's a Juneteenth celebration. And I was able to just go across the street and bask in Juneteenth. And that was so, that's what Harlem is. So every day you have a cultural affirmation about who you are, why you are enough. It's just like a high five walking down the street in Harlem. It is a, it is a high five. And, and, and you know, thank you. <laughs> cultural high five to Harlem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what I love about it. It's a community and it really does shore you up. It has shorn me up. So I never, and, and you know, I talk about this in my book, Revelations, Lessons from My Mother, Auntie Bestie. <laughs> Available in paperback and hard copy. Everywhere where books are sold. Lewis has several copies in the back that he's willing to sell you. He actually doesn't, but he, but he could. Actually, Nilu has several copies, so if you want to go. And they're signed, and they're signed. Thank you, Mark. But I think you, you epitomize something that Harlem also means to me. I would come here every summer, summer to visit relatives. My dad is from here. You know, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, everybody was here. Um, and that even as a child I would take in when coming to visit is that fashion is clothes, mm -hmm. but style is the whole package. Yeah. And you totally epitomize that, Thank as you. does... You know, Dan, yeah. Melbourne, you know, Marcus as well, yes. you know. And style is not something really, I think, that can be taught. It's not, it's not anything that can be taught. Um, style really does come from liking yourself and having confidence about who mm. you are. That's style. How you carry fashion. How, yeah. How you yeah. carry yourself. You yeah, know? because the clothes can certainly wear you. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I think one of the reasons why Dap was so very um, successful um, in the 80s um, was because he was making clothes for people who really like themselves. And so when, and so Jap basically made them their superhero costumes. Yeah. Like they knew they were superheroes, but then they would put on a Dapper Dan Extravaganza, baby. It would be like the cake. Shout out to Dapper Dan charging thousands of dollars even back in the 1980s. <laughs> baby, I was so happy when Dap gave me my first Dapper Dan jacket. Can you tell us about the experience of even going in? I've read about it, of course, but I, I haven't been to the store back then, so what was it like? So it was like that. It was a, it was a storefront. Yeah. It was not chic. Would you agree, Dab? It wasn't chic. It wasn't chic. Okay. <laughs> um, but what was going on in there was yeah, very chic. chic. Yeah. Um, people came in. Yeah, hello and good morning. That's right, Dab. Yeah. Chic people came in. Um, and it was a place, it was a place where mythology was created, right? Like, it was a magical thing. And, you know, Harlem during that time, it was, you know, very a tale of two things. The best of times and the worst of times, right? Mm -hmm. And so, at Daps, you could see the best of times, you could see the worst of times, yeah. you know what I mean? And they, they lived like that. And, but what would go on is that every night in front of Daps store was a car show. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was a literal car show. You would see the best cars. And then when Daps started doing interiors for cars and everything... It made it even, it upped the ante even more, you know what I mean? It, but it was just like one of those things where 
as a young woman, we would just walk over there and be like, you know, we might come from a club or something. We'd be like, let's go over and see what's going on in front of Jeopardies. Because <laughs> you knew something was going to be happening in front of Jeopardies. You know what I mean? You just knew. And, um, nice. you know, and, 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 and that was a magical thing. And it was the Apollo Theater, which was a car show. And it was Harlem Week when it was like, you know, it, it spanned from 125th Street and like 5th all the way to like St. Nicholas. It was like huge. And we closed off all of those huge boulevards and it was just like a festival. It was magical. Um, you know, and, and those, that's the Harlem that fed me. Mm-hmm. And that's the Harlem that gave me the ability to go to Europe and explain to them about our culture um, and take my James Van Der Zee book so they could see that this is not something that we're yes. new to. It's something that we're true to style. You know, um, you know, really quick note, um, because my baby over there with the ramen, ramen noodles and everything. History is so important to what we do. Um, and she told me that she heard me talk about burlesque, black burlesque um, troops in, in Harlem and everything. But, you know, it's important to note that in Harlem and, and with James Van Der Zee, you know, a lot of our cultural legacy of looking good and dressing well really does come out of discrimination. Mm-hmm. It's because they, they, the Klan spread rumors that we were dirty and unkept mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So that's the reason why if you have a grandmother over the age of 80, you remember getting your elbows and your knees scrubbed and you know you could not go into a store not being like prim and proper. It's the reason why when you see the civil rights photos, everyone's suited and booted. You know what I mean? These are all, this is a part of our cultural DNA. And I think a lot of times we get it confused it's been so diluted now that we don't understand that style is also a shorthand for us, a shorthand for us going for liberation and, 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 and um, our, our desire to be seen and, and recognized. Amen. Yeah. Um, Betty, three things that I connect to Rooster and you, and they're all beautiful memories. Like a year before, maybe six months before we opened the restaurant, I was arguing with the, um, yeah, he was an architect. I guess he's an architect. He's, he's like, he can stamp, and we couldn't stamp. Like, mm-hmm. Andrew and I had the ideas for how we wanted to build it, but we can't, we're not architects, so right. that we hired an architect, and he had to stamp for us, right? And he said, the bar needs to be on the side. I said, no, the bar needs to be up front. Yes. Because the bar is an extension of Lennox. We only have to match, it's our job. The whole restaurant is built on matching the energy of Lennox. If we can't match that, we're not doing our job. And then he had this tiny little, like, skinny, like, Kate Moss thing. And I was like, that's not a bar. There's, this bar needs to be inspired by Bevy. The curve. Yes, absolutely. And he's like, Who's Bevy? I was like, you're building our bar and you don't know who Bevy is? <laughs> and then he felt bad, so then we have to Google you. And then the next couple of days, he came back with a bar that was rounder, but it wasn't curvy enough. So even the bar curves <laughs> are inspired upstairs by Bevy. Yes, curves! Yeah. Second, second, second. Are you talking about my bar in London? We're going to talk about all that. The okay. second bar. Second memory. Like... I think a third night here or whatever. And you know, like, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of Harlem entrepreneurs here. That feeling of being 
nervous? Are they going to come? Is it going to work, right? You have bills up, and you, you're just nervous, right? And it was a snowstorm. And that day, on a Sunday, Bevy came in for brunch. You know, Bevy, like, there's... Bev has one table and people come and go and Me come and, and go and go. Me and Thelma Golden share the go. table. Yeah, Me and okay. Thelma Golden share the book. Shout out to Thelma. Shout out to Thelma, of course, absolutely. <laughs> but Bevy stayed, she had brunch, dinner, and cocktails yes. through the snowstorm. <laughs> and that's what I knew. It's like, wow, this is going to work. Because <laughs> we can hold Bevy's attention for like six hours. Oh, it's going to work. <laughs> I was confident. And the last one, the third one was, you guys know, most people in this room were here way before we had, you know, when it was just a sweaty basement with no AC, yeah. right? But the spirit and the ambition and thank you, Ian Davis, for like, Hanging out and being there. Because Ian is like the hippest guy I know. Yes. He truly is. And for him to even stay here during that time, I appreciate you and we appreciate you for, because you also bring Harlem with you. Yes, he does. Everywhere. So one day, Bevy hosted a party here way before we had all these lights. I was like, wow. If Bevy can actually host, because I know Bevy's crowd is from everywhere. I think, I think the basement's going to work. Yeah. So, Bevy, we love you. But the last, last piece of that was when we, had to op- when we opened Red Rooster in London, the whole bar, Red Rooster bar in London, in Shoreditch, has pictures of Bevy and her mom and her sister and Bevy being the ultimate fly girl. So the bar is, it's Bevy's bar. It's so. Bevy's bar. And he didn't tell me. I just happened to be in London at the same time when he was opening Shoreditch, and I was like, oh my God, you're opening, I have to come. And he's like, yeah, you do. And then when I get there, and it's like Bevy's bar, and it actually says Bevy's yes, bar, yes. pictures of me. Um, it's like so, you know, honored. And, and the thing, I, you know, I love about you and the thing I love about my Melba, um, and, and, and Harlem Haberdashery and Nilo, and, and you know, because you guys do such a great job of making old Harlem feel comfortable and these spaces that could be perceived as New Harlem. And that is not something that we should take lightly because there are places in this community that are not of the community and is not for the community. And I do not frequent those places. Um, and um, oh, also the ice cream place on, on Linux, they also do a great job at that too. Sugar Hill, you guys do a great job at that as well, you know, but, but that's not something that's so easy to do, especially if you're not from the community. A lot of times people come in and they're like, oh, I don't know what's going on, fearful or what have you. But you guys do such a great job. And, and last but certainly not least, I want to shout out my girl, Thelma Golden of Studio Museum. Of yes, Harlem. absolutely. Oh, and also my girl, Sade, the National Black Theater. Yes, yes. All of our cultural institutions, two places that are like home for me and that I love so much. And, and it's so great to see Harlem coming back in that regard, like the cultural arts, I mean, never really left, but to see it now be on a national level and to see it getting the resources that we so being long deserved and being invested in instead of them having to go around with arms for the poor, you know what yeah. I mean? Like shaking a damn can, yeah. receiving the, the money that they, they deserve. So it's, it's, it's great to see this re-renaissance of our Harlem. We love you, Bevy Smith. You Bevy Thank Smith, you so much. The next host... Of the Bevis Smith Show. Cut it. No. 
Because I believe in manifestation. So, that, oh, yes it is. That's right, baby. Thank you, Ian. Um, I started acting. It was my goal. And I started yeah. acting in a new show called um, Harlem in, on Amazon Prime. Yeah. I came in to do one scene with three lines. I instead turned it into three scenes with multiple lines, and including them, let me improv. And now it's just been renewed for season two. So y'all want to see more of Aunt Tan? Yes, yes, yes. So on to the next one. Lastly, the man of many decades that truly changed fashion, not just in America, but through the world, Mr. Dapper Dan. You go to the Met Gala, you go to the Grammys, you go to the Oscars, everyone is wearing Dap, right? And it used to be maybe just in our community, now it's way outside our community. Whether Japanese kids are coming or the red carpets in Milan, we're all impacted by Dap. Dap also made a killer deal with Gap, you know, his hoodies started at, you know, he made it accessible for us, but now they go on eBay for thousands of dollars. Dap have had such a huge impact on the culture of hip-hop and urban style. He's always the standard of when you think about what fashion and hip-hop can look like. And people try to copy Dap for decades. But guess what? You can't. There's only one Dapper Dan. That's why we are so excited and feel so privileged that Dapper Dan is on our 100th episode. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think actually for this one, yeah. everyone has to stand up. For, the, yeah, yeah. for this one, we have to stand up a little bit, right? Because this is the one, the only, the legend, the icon, the man, the myth. Yes, yes, yes. Come on, Mr. Dapper Dan. Come on, man. What's up? Come here. Thank you, everybody. I'm, I'm home in Harlem. One thing about Harlem, but we gotta thank our women, man. It wasn't for uh, the ladies that you just saw on this stage. You know, they are indicative of the women that put me in the place that I am today, man. I have to thank all the women that got me in the position I am in today. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So every conversation that I have, I start off thinking them. Yeah. Beautiful. And you know, one of my favorite thing on Lennox Avenue when you walk up Lennox, and this is, people don't believe this, especially when I'm abroad and say this, like, what is it like living in Harlem? I said, I said, you have to understand that it's a village, right? Where you have a lot of small businesses supporting one another. And if I walk up on 122nd 
Or even if I'm on, on 120th, I look at the incredible street and then I see Leah, you know, Leah, she's in front of her bakery, Setapani, and then I walk across the street and I see Dap, and this is, people don't believe this, Dap stands in front of the store and he talks to maybe 10, 15 people all the time and it's, it's not a marketing ploy, right? He teaches entrepreneurship. He talks about everything actually but fashion. And he stands there and talks to so many people and they all want to take pictures with him. And he takes the pictures and then he goes back to the conversation. And I've, I watched it and I said, this is one of these things that I'm privileged to see that maybe will never leave Harlem, but I know it's happening, right? So there's, what do you see? You see sm small businesses thriving, hiring 10, 15 people, so people are working in their community. And then you have like the spread, sort of like someone like DAP that actually reaches black, not only black creators, but creators all over the world. But that one-on-one -on -one conversation that you give young people on the street that m a lot of people in this room knows is happening, that for me, it's incredible. And I just wanted to thank you for that because you do it all the time. But yeah, you know, um, I owe that to the community and it's important to me. And I have to be able to be on that corner. I take the bus, I take the train. Sometimes I take the bus markers from 121st Street to 125th and then from and Manhattan Avenue and then from Manhattan Avenue all the way to Linus Avenue and then walk the three blocks. So and the sometimes you the voice that, that I'm connected to them. You know, so so that they can see me. And a young guy told me, he say, Yo, Dev, man, I can't believe you're on the train. I never thought I'd see you on the train. I said, Yes, but if I wasn't on the train, I wouldn't have saw you. You know, and it's important to me that I, I tell them the story because a lot of young guys don't know. When I tell them, I say, man, do you realize when I was growing up, we did not have a drug epidemic? They can't even imagine that. You know, they can't even imagine Harlem without a drug epidemic. And so I try to take them through the stages of development in Harlem to let them know it wasn't always like this. We could be different because we came here different. You know, So I'm the first generation of the great migration that came out of the South. So I had a chance to see, like, my generation is the first generation that across the board exceeded all the accomplishments of the generation that came before them. And so I saw that. And when I saw that, I said, I got to do something. I got to make a difference now. You know, but I knew that what I was up against. So therefore, when I was in Harlem, when I was in Africa, I said, oh, wow. What I noticed was the work ethic in Harlem, you know? And I reminded myself of the work ethic that the generation had that came before me, like my father and them. So I said, you know what? To build this dream, I'm going to surround myself with Africans because I think like an immigrant. So eventually, I started out with one African, two Africans. Next thing I know, I had 12 Africans working in the day, 11 working at night. We was open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for 10 years straight. You know, because they had that kind of work ethic that my father came to Harlem with. And so from that, I was able to build. And then as I was building that, you know, I generated enough excitement, you know, till uh, young guys like myself, they was like, when I was growing up, it, to be into fashion, it was a sissy thing. When they see a guy like myself come off the corner, it became a gangster thing. Now we got gangster designers. <laughs> You know, so it changed the whole 
picture and open up a, a, a whole new world for guys to come off the corner. I get calls and people stopping me every day. Guys who I know would not ordinarily be involved in fashion, but now they have a new, a new daughter walking. So I'm happy about that. And I try to, to, to keep pushing them and, and keep laying down how we can, you know, build just off that alone. Now, that, it is incredible for me to sit next to you to hear you speak is an honor. I mean, hip-hop as a culture was a, uh, a new expression, an involvement of something that had been, that built on bits and pieces of what was there before, strong music that affected people globally. And you see today, it's the, it's the most influential, uh, it's the cornerstone of global pop culture. But before you, it didn't have its own fashion in that way. I mean, you know, you look at Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, or, you know, the, 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 the old school pioneers were, you know, they were creating a fashion but you took it, when I see the paid in full cover, which is basically the one with Eric B and Rakim sitting with their backs turned, it's basically Dapper Dan, the whole cover. And that created a fashion language that then became in the 90s, mm -hmm. all the hip hop brands that popped up. Mm -hmm. And you're still here today. What is the... What has been your secret of staying power? Because I don't think a lot of, like a lot of those brands from the 90s, you know, the FUBUs, the Cross Colors, unfortunately they're not still here today, but, but Dapper Dan still is. What is the secret to your staying power? Okay, two reasons. Let me start off with the first. Let me see who knows that. <laughs> Anybody know what that is? Handball. handball. You know why I did the handball? That was the first expression that we had coming out of the South. We didn't have instruments. We beat on our body, you know? But to beat on your body, you had to have the right outfit. And so when we used to do the handbone, we had to have jeans on to make that special sound. So early on in life, I made the connection between music and garments, right? Then later on, I'm moving to your point, and then later on, during the jazz era, I noticed my brother and them was fascinated with the uh, jazz artists and that they had, they got their keys from how the jazz artists dressed, you know? And like, and then when I say, okay, that's where the influence came from. Then I watched the transition when I saw Miles Davis, when he, Miles Davis was playing new jazz. And then when he went to the, to that concert and saw how acid rock was taken off and then his outfits changed, you know? So I said, you know, the other side of the coin to fashion, you know, is music. Yeah. It's that combination. So I was already aware on how to approach it by the time hip hop came along. So now I'm on, I'm on, when I open up my store and, and the hip hop artists are coming in, I would ask them how do they feel and listen to their lyrics on, you know, what they were saying. So when Eric B and Rock King came in, I listened to, I say, Rock King, how do you want to look? Eric B wanted to look swagged out, so I made him his Gucci swagged out. Rakim wanted to manifest his religious beliefs, so on the back of his outfit, you know, I put the, you know, 5% sign. Now, here come uh, Boogie Down Production, right? Boogie Down Production came in and said, yo, man, we into this roster thing here. 
So when I make the roster thing up, I use the roster colors. And you know, so I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm living and producing from the culture, not from myself. I go to them, find out how they feel about themselves, and then I create from there. So when um, Jungle Brothers come in, you know, they into Afrocentric. So I would make them outfits in red, green, and black. You know, and so whoever came in, I'd find out how they feel or how they felt about what they was doing or their music or the message that they wanted to deliver, and I would shape it on that. My whole approach to fashion was, I don't want to dictate fashion, I want to translate culture. So that's always been my, you know, the way I approach it. You know, and so you mentioned these brands that came about. They did not pay attention to the blueprint. The only brand that I could see today that really paid attention was Harlem Haberdashery. Harlem Haberdashery stayed true to what this is all about. You understand? You create. You constantly create. You don't come out with a line, you know, and get everybody on the corner wearing a line. You constantly create for the artists. You constantly create for the people in the community. You know, fashion and music should be like the Harlem River. It's always there, but it's always moving. You know? Um, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you, told, you, you taught me so many things, and I just think your story is so important. I'm going, one thing that you taught me and you talked talk to me about was you and your brother, right, going way back, right? You guys used to share clothes, and it was different hours. It was different schedules. Like, he had the early shift, or you had the late shift. Can you just share that story with us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, first of all, growing up, you know, Goodwills was our Macy's, okay? <laughs> you know, and so, like, my mom would buy something, and it goes down the line. So my brother James, right over to me, you know, I would, like, have to get up early before he did so I can wear his clothes and get out, right? But he got hip to me. So he used to be right by, right by the door waiting on me to check me out, make sure I had none of his clothes on. So when I, I had my best friend, Herman and Thurman, I say, wait by the window. You know? They wait by the window, and I dropped my brother's outfits out the window. <laughs> I dropped the outfits out the window and then changed in the hallway. All right? So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at school one day, and I'm fronting for the chicks like, yeah. My brother stopped. I see somebody tearing across the schoolyard. I say, damn, that look like my brother. <laughs> and here come my brother tearing across the schoolyard. You know, he takes me. In. I say, we can't. You can't go into school. He take me into school and took me into the teacher's bathroom. I say, you can't take me into the teacher's bathroom. And made me change. You know, I had to sneak back home because I didn't want the people who saw me come to school <laughs> in the outfit that I didn't have. Yeah, man, it was, it was some hard time. So, so Marcus, you know, like clothes was so transformative for, for me, you know, because, you know, we had rats and roaches in the building, man. I, you know, it was so bad one time. Yeah, I could look under my sink and talk to my neighbor, you know. But so clothes was transformative, man. I, probably what got me involved in the first place. So I would like, uh, if you got really sharp and you go to school, nobody know you're poor. If you go downtown, nobody can go to you're poor. So it's this transformative factor associated with what you wear 
that gives you that incentive to want to be somebody because you, you have that feeling as long as you got the, that look, you know? So that, that was a, a, big, a big thing with me. I didn't want to go to school if I wasn't dressed right, man. I like what Bevy said about, you know, these MCs, these pioneer MCs were superheroes and you created their superhero costumes. I mean, that, that, that takes clothes to a whole nother level, you know. <laughs> yeah, and let me tell you something. Uh, the funny, one of the funny stories my mother told me, you know, and we got a picture of it, you know. So the uh, original uh, uh, red, uh, red uh, hair my mother used to go to, right? And um, I get, we had a picture of her sitting up in there on a stool with a cigarette. And I said, Ma, you didn't even smoke. She's sitting up in the stool. So she would, like, walk to the original red pad. And, and, and then when she get there, she get maybe four blocks away, she catch a cab. Because <laughs> that, that was a big deal back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catching the cab was a big deal back then. So that just goes to show you how transformative, how you can get sharp, you know, mm -hmm. and look a certain way and feel a certain way. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. But, but I also have to say, just like food, right, fashion style, it can be very expensive. And these are places where we always worked in but we have not had opportunities like today. And in, in food, it's changing dramatically. And there's a lot of people that are pushing down the doors and making it, just changing how food and how black spaces and black voices will live and feel and, and, and the stories. But fashion is one of the most expensive spaces to get into and institutionalized and it's very difficult to change sort of how that works. But for me, it's really these two people that have changed for black people all over the world how fashion can be viewed. It's Andre Leontali yes. and it's you, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And the luxury that Jason and I have being black but also being part of being in Scandinavia and Sweden, so we meet black creative people all over the world. And wherever I go, they always ask me about how, how is, they ask me about Apollo and they ask me about Dapper Dan. Those are the two things out of Harlem, they're black creatives and they're both aspirational to me, right? And it's so, I can't, I can't even describe it in words because Dapper Dan means that, it doesn't mean even if you're into fashion and being black in Germany or in Japan, it's just be having, maybe you want to be an architect. It, for me, it's about you break down barriers that are some of the hardest barriers for us to get in spaces to get into. We were always fly, we were always stylish, but the way you've done it, it just changed everything forever, right? So it's, for me, it's just important that you know, I know you know it because people tell you, but it's really important that we celebrate you and we thank you because uh, you inspire so many, and the fact that I can see you on a daily basis, that's just like, it, I, I have to pinch myself because it's like, it's unbelievable. But I just wanted you to know that, and just want to say thank you for all that you're doing. And I saw this last six months where people have been giving you all the awards. I'm like, you guys are late. Like, you should have given them the awards 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but now, you're also getting all the awards, and we thank you for that. Yeah, and it's because, like, the generation that came before me that never gave up, 
that uh, you know that I got all that inspiration from. You know, I saw my, my father came up. You know, like like your grandfather came up from the south and um, only went to the third grade and taught himself how to read. And you know, and I read. I remember when my father first uh, first heard me read. You know, we went. At, it was like Ripley's department store. I was gonna get my first suit. You know, it was a pinstripe suit, man. It was my first suit I was going to get. So my father was going to get it on time. So I went, oh, we go up to Ripley's uh, department store. It was on 125th Street in Lexington Hamlet at the time. So you had to go up a few steps to get into it, right? So um, I was in the eighth grade. So my father, um, they was discussing, you know, the terms and everything to pay for the suit on time. Right? I said, Dad, let me, let, me, let me read the contract. So I read the contract, and I said... Dad, don't get it, man. This is this this don't because they was gonna charge him like two and a half times what the suit was. I said, Dad, don't get it, right? So we left out and we coming down the steps, right? And my father grabbed me by both arms. He said, Boy, don't you know you could read? He said, Boy, don't you know you could read? You know, and I I took that for granted, but I saw the tears well up in his eyes because my father only went to the third grade and he had to teach himself to read, so he knew the importance of reading, right? And then when I when it occurred to me when I got 23 and what Malcolm said, you know, I said, I said, I'm gonna read my way out and into everything I want to do. Wow. And, and that's how I taught myself everything it is about everything I've learned, everything I know about fashion, I taught myself. You know, I read books, go to trade show. This year I did a uh, speaking engagement at the magic show, the number one show. That's only the second time I've been to the magic show. I don't go to the where they have things that they display. I want to go where they got the machines that make the things that they display, you know? So I always went to the seed, like Malcolm said, so that I can understand the flower. And reading allowed me to do that. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, and that... Who, who's playing Mr. Dapper Dan in the movie? Because the book was incredible, New York oh, Times yeah. bestseller. So yeah. who, who is... is, is Who's is, it is it Denzel? Oh, okay, okay. You open up a door for me to, to talk about the book, but more about the experience, right? Um, can you imagine that only in these last four years have I had any contact with white people? <laughs> in, in the last four, four years. years. Yeah. I was, I was in, I was in the black. You know, until until the sisters say, no, Dapper Dan did that first. Y'all better do something. But all of that for the last four years. However, so I'm getting to know um, white people on a different level now, you know. <laughs> Especially the white people, that, you know, that live around me that don't know who I am yet because they, they see me now and they go. Because <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> they don't know I'm Dapper Dan yet. So I'm getting used to them. I'm getting used to them, and they get used to me. But, but however, I know white people before they got so white. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Now, when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in these houses. Yeah, a lot of, lot of, lot of poor, poor, I grew up with poor white people. Those are the ones I really knew. Look, my best friend was Jackie Michaels. He was Irish. My other best friend was Alonzo and Negodio. They were Greek. And then my other friends was Bobby Bermondi and Richie Bermondi. And they was poor like us and live in the same buildings with us, you know what I mean? But they all made it out. You know, they all made it out. So I never made, I heard about the melting pot, but 
chocolate didn't melt in that pot. <laughs> you, know <what> I'm <laughs> you know, so I'll say hell with it. I'm going to stay here. Me and Carlos, you know, Carlos Rodriguez and all my Latino friends, you know. So I saw Harlem when it was truly a village, you know. So I saw, a, I saw white people when they was born. I saw how they came up and saw what it was like, you know. And then I was here when white people came back. I said, wow. And they, I, what shocked me? They're moving in tenement buildings. Uh, you know, we got a lot of condos coming up, but they're moving across the street in tenements. I say, damn. <laughs> they're moving in buildings where black folks is already in. <laughs> so, you know, I talk about all this in my book and my experiences, you know, my early experiences, but it shaped me. Because, like, during the revolutionary uh, period in the 60s when everybody was getting real mad at white folks, you know, I never forget Alonzo Nagodio, you know, Bobby Bermondi, Richie Bermondi, and Jackie Michaels. So I never could, I never could go along with the, uh, what was happening, you know, this whole I idea of um, what racism was called, you know, was doing. So my reaction to it wasn't there. And then by going, reading Malcolm, going back and forth, and then studying, uh, metaphysics and theosophy under the, the books that I was reading, you know, and I regained because, because I lost my identity, because I had the identity crisis, I was angry. But once I got over that identity crisis, I was able to, you know, gain my spirituality and my humanity, and that's what shaped me to who I am today. Mr. Dapadan. You know, I'm thinking, you know, listening to you speak, I'm thinking of, you know, rest in peace to the, the late, uh, very brilliant uh, mind of Virgil Abloh. Oh, yeah, uh, we got to talk about know, them. Continuation of, of a legacy that you helped create. Um, what piece of advice would you have to young black designers, people in, in fashion? Uh, what tip could you, you know, give somebody who's, in it trying to make their way up or who's who wants to get in it. Okay, good. But let's talk about um, Andre Leon Talley yeah. and let's talk about Virgil, all right? Let's talk about how important he is because like there's two staircases. There's a white staircase and a black staircase. I came up the black staircase. Is that even you know, a staircase? Until I got to the top. Yeah. So I don't know what that other staircase was like. But Virgil and Andre Leon Talley came up that white staircase. So they know how to navigate in and out of those rooms, dealing with you know, racism and discrimination and, 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 and all of that. So a, a lot of the lessons they had to teach all of us who's coming behind them or who came up with them is lost when, they got, when we lost them. You know, and, and, that's, and that's the sad thing, you know? But, in my situation, I could tell you how to come from the ground and build, and if you crash, build again, and if you crash, build again, because I went back and forth from a table to up, back to a table to up. I know how to do bad, you know? And that's one of the main keys. Everybody knows how to do good, you know? But you have to learn how to do bad. Now, the second part of your question. Um, what advice would I, uh, would I give to young people? What I tell them is this. 
Learn how to get outside of yourself. You know, learn how to get whatever resides, all that creativity that resides within you, that's always going to be there. But learn how to embrace people in the culture, to translate how they want to feel about fashion, how they want to look, you know, then success will come easier for you. But if you get hung up on yourself, then you might not never make it. So you have to wait till your time comes, you know, for somebody to I to recognize like, oh, he is kind of creative. If you embrace the culture, if you help translate the culture, you know, then you move along with the feelings and the ways people want to represent themselves. So in fashion, I think that's important, you know, to, to do that. It's very important, but especially today, you have to learn how to interact with people. You know, so the number one thing is the creative thing. What I, what I, what I ask myself uh, when I started out, I'll say, well, and they should ask yourself this. Why should somebody want to wear something I made? You know? And then you have to set about creating a reason for them to want to wear it. There is no ugly. Ugly is defined by powerful people. There's no such thing as ugly. You know? So it's, it's, it's like in fashion, there's no right or wrong. There's a weak and a strong. Strong people determine the road that fashion is going to take. That's why they go get all of our top influences. You know what I mean? Because the influence is the embodiment of strength. You know, once you get the influences, then you, then you can run with it. You know, the influences, everybody wants to be like them, to look like them. So they are defining what the look is. You know, so that's what they're up against today. You inspire, and we want to thank you for that. If you guys know, there's actually a link between the U.S. Supreme Court and Dapper Dan, but it shows like it shows it shows like I strength see those from robes. all three people. <laughs> it's actually connected to the Mike Tyson when Mike Tyson um, mm. when he had when he was boxed. Anyway, he went to the store. Mike Green, this Mitch Green from Harlem, and they were in the store. They started their own fight outside the store, and. Sonia Sotom so this is in the paper the next day, right? And Sonia Sotomayor Soto like reads like, why is the store open at four o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and everybody else reads the store is like, wow, that's so cool. Mike Tyson was fighting on the street buying tap <laughs> clothing. So people can take different things from different stories, right? But uh, what uh, actually happened? Okay, uh, let me explain to you why I was open two o'clock in the morning, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, we got to talk about who I was catering to. Yes. Middle yes. class black people would not come to that. What? What are you making up in there? You know, he's selling drugs up in there, you know. You know? So <laughs> middle class black people did not come. Middle class black people did not recognize and understand what I was doing. Like, if you guys come to the store now, my whole back of the store I have covered with magazines. International magazines, all of them, all across the floor. All these magazines, none of them are black. You know? And so I wasn't recognized for what I was doing because black people didn't quite understand it then. 
right? So I think it was um, the European the, um, magazine too. I, I can't think of their names off that, that took notice to what I was doing, and they featured me. Then next thing I know, all 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 these magazines is writing about me. Now, I grew up with Ebony and Jet. Seeing all those beautiful middle class black people looking so pretty outside of Harlem. I always wanted to be like them pretty people, them pretty black people. We used to take the magazine, set it on, me and my friend Kurt, take the magazine, set it on the table. Okay, you got that page, I got this page. I'm everybody on this page. You everybody on. <laughs> and we would flip them pages, you know? And that was the closest we got to it. So Ebony Magazine never recognized me. Jet never recognized me. Ebony recognized me two years ago when they gave me, they, they, they honored me. But I understand. You know, our, our middle class black people are so stable, so shaky, they, but they're so important. Yeah, I'm talking about y'all. Yeah, but they're so, <laughs> they so important. You know what I mean? Because y'all, y'all built it, but don't stub your nose. Pay attention. You know, so after all these white folks start paying attention to me you know, and start copying off of me, and I said, "Yeah, that come from Dapper Dan, so don't even try it, yeah." <laughs> and then the, and the black woman spoke up, and that and, that, and the whole tide changed. You know, everything changed then, man. So, uh, you know, for, I'm grateful because I know it had to happen the way it happened. You know, I had um. Already experienced, like, uh, and I remember 1950, Nat King Cole had the number one record, right? Um, and he had a TV show, right? And every so often, every week or so, he would say, I'm gonna, dis I'm gonna show you who my sponsors was. I'm gonna show you who my sponsors was, you know? But he could never get a, a sponsor because, you know, it wasn't, we didn't have that black clientele back then, you know, but later on as it built, you know, even though white people appreciate them, they still wasn't gonna go see them, you know? So something happened, you know, with social media, you know, and, you know, and white magazines that changed the whole picture and allowed me to be where I am today, you know? But, you know, the bottom line is it wouldn't happen without black folks. It just so happened that I had to start with the gangsters, you know, and then move up the line. Well, we yes. salute Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson, Mike, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Mike Tyson. Let me tell you what, Mike Tyson, right? So, <laughs> Mitch Blood Green hung out in the neighborhood over here on Park Avenue, under there where they have all the, yeah. all the bad stuff going on. And we had these young kids in the neighborhood called the Gremlins. And I saw this happening in other countries, too. And it happened in the Battle of Algiers. Yeah, when you, when you see the movie, The Battle of Algiers, and you see the young people beating up the drug dealers and the winos and just cleansing society. Well, we had a group of young kids like that called the Gremlins that used to do what they call flush the park. They used to go on, on, on uh, and flush the avenue. They'd go on Park Avenue and just flush it, run all the drug dealers and all the prostitutes away from Park Avenue. And then they would go to Mama's Park, which is Marcus Garvey Park, and flush the park. These young kids between 11 and 14. So Mitch Blood Green used to hang out on Park Avenue. So uh, they told Mitch Green when two or three o'clock in the morning, they, they come by there, they see Mike Tyson up in the store. So they told Mitch Blood Green, oh, you punk, Mike Tyson whip your butt. Mike Tyson whip your butt. And he over Dapper Dan's right now. You know, so I had been waiting for Mike Tyson to come pick up a jacket, but I said, man, I'm going on home. 
and I left my uh, manager there. So Mr. Blood Green come over there, and he started picking a fight with Mike Tyson. So the fight went outside, onto the sidewalk. Mr. Blood Green went to Mike Tyson's, uh, his uh, Rolls Royce, and ripped the side mirror off, and Mike decks him. Oh, by the way, this is all in my book. I ain't trying to plug it because it's a New York Times bestseller and we're getting ready to do the documentary on the book. And on top of that, Lee Daniels is directing the series based on my life. So you're going to know everything you want to know about Harlem, but didn't know who to ask, check my book out. Yeah. My book is, I got to talk about my book for My book is the most serious book that you, you could ever read since Cloyd Brown's uh, Man Child of the Promised Land because what it embraces. Remember, when Man Child of the Promised Land came out, you know, it wasn't popular with, with the, the elite black people. You know, they were, they were against what he was saying, but he was reflecting truly what was going on in the street. Well, that's what my book is today. You'll get a look at exactly what happened with us and how it evolved and you know, going from the rivers to the drugs to, to the, you know, all the revolutionary fervor and different revolutionary groups. How, you know, are coming of age for myself. But I really appreciate each and one of you here. And Mr. Dapadan, I thank you for everything that you contributed for the culture and that you will do. I just want to thank everyone for coming. Mr. Dapadan, Ms. Bevy Smith, Melba, who had to leave, and all of y'all that are here Thank you for letting me be here. Marcus Samuelson, my dear brother, you made this 100th episode a marathon and a tribute to storytelling to this beautiful uh, part of the city, to Harlem, you know. Thank you. Isn't I don't know how we ever going to top this no, for the we next, won't. For the next we won't. hundred, but you know. But also the fact that we're all together, that we can start doing this again. Look around you. This was the type of stuff that we made. Yeah. yeah. I want to thank you guys for having us here, man, because, you know, y'all give us a platform to talk about Harlem. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Jared, our amazing producer. Otherwise, without Jared, this thank wouldn't you, Jared. be happening. Thank you, Jared. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Red Rooster team. Salim. Thank you. All right, folks. That was our 100th episode. And I'd like to say we did it in style. We did it big. We made it happen. Harlem came out. Ginny's was packed the way it's supposed to be. It almost made me forget that there had ever been a pandemic. And I never would forget. But, you know, still, it took us back to why we need to do this podcast because we need the sense of community we need the sense of closeness the sharing of stories that's the only thing that can carry us through crises like this pandemic and that to be honest with all y'all is what this moment has meant to me i know it has to my dear brother marcus uh, so we're just you know it's just a blessing that we've done a hundred of the a hundred of these and Marcus, that 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 you brought it together like that for the hundredth episode, man. Go. Oh no, we did. It's, it's it's legendary. It's legendary. All right, guys, and you know one of the cool things with this is also it's actually all really just setting up what Jason got coming this spring, which is 
you mm-hmm. know, a drop of midnight at Harlem yes, Stage sir. in June. Actually, yes, it kicks sir. off on June 6th, so hang in there for that as well. Thank you so much once mm-hmm. again. And special thanks to Chef Kingsley, Spiros, Jody, Corbin, Angela Bankhead, Justin Wines, Salim, of course, for providing the goodies from Bon Bon. I want to shout out my dear brother, Jens Kords Resch. Thanks a lot for the music and congratulations on your newborn child. Thank you, Harlem. Blah, blah, blah. That 100, I will never forget it. All right, peace. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 